And away we go. Welcome on into the Double Check Podcast. I am Colin. And I'm Brett. And we are once again uh, doing a special edition. Uh, Brett is calling in by phone, uh, joining us virtually here. Um, so we're going to have another interesting coin flip again today, Brett. Yes, we are. And speaking of coin flip, I have to flip the coin and I need to find a coin. Well, I hope that it is an authorized uh, American quarter because that's the only thing that we've been using for our flips. Uh, I can I can find one. I'm looking. I'm looking. You you just keep doing your thing. All right. Well, uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for listening to the podcast, uh, whether it be on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you uh, rate, comment, and subscribe. Give us a review. Give us five stars. Come on, man. Don't be a hater. Uh, and we are going to be going into uh, some more details about uh, the holiday season here. And uh, have you have you located a quarter at this point, Brett? I located a quarter. I'm ready to go. And I'm ready to hear your thoughts around this Hanukkah time of year. All right. Well, I'm very excited to, uh, to go into this because this is something that I think... Uh, I think is often overlooked or just not really understood or talked about very much. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll dive into that. I, I know I didn't talk very much about it whenever I was growing up. Don't really know very much. A lot of what I've learned, I've learned from you. So I'm excited for our audience to get to hear about it. All right, so uh, I'm ready to call <laughs> the coin flip here. Um, I, I think okay. you know I've been going. Uh, tails never fails most of the time, but my I, I did have a football coach who used to say, "Tails never fails, but you call heads or you're deads." So I'm going to call heads today. Excellent. All right. So I've got a coin here, heads and tails, and I'm flipping, and it comes up tails. <sighs> All right. So that means that I have won the toss today, and I will defer. So Colin, you can go first today. All right. Well, uh, I am going to go first, and today. I want to talk about Israel, and my thesis today is that they are still God's people. We have Hanukkah coming up in a couple of weeks here, and I think that this would be a good opportunity to talk about the Jews, because this is something that, as we mentioned a moment ago, most churchgoers and even most church leaders today are somewhat ill-informed about. And if you know your Bible, you know that the Jews are still God's chosen people, and he still has a plan for them. But the more you learn about church history and the more you realize how tragically anti-Semitic the church became and how that fed some of the Nazi ideals. So I'm going to talk about the prodigal heirs, or as God calls them in Scripture, my people Israel. And it's astonishing to me, as you mature in Christian circles, to discover how few churches realize that they are his people. When it comes to Israel and the church, you'll quickly realize that they are very distinct from and yet entangled with each other. 
Now, Israel's origin, I'm sure you all know, uh, they went down to Egypt as a family of, of about 70 people, and they came out as a nation of about a million and a half four centuries later. The nation was born in Exodus. The church was born in Acts chapter 2. They have similar but different missions, and they have totally different destinies, but they do co-mingle at the end. So what I think I'll do is in one session we're going to look at Israel, and next time we're going to consider the church, because there is some confusion about what belongs to who when it comes to these two. So let's talk first about Israel, and I'm not here to sugarcoat them. We're going to look at them candidly, and the way that we look at them candidly is to look at them the way the Scripture looks at them. But as we do this, I think it's important for you to have in mind Paul's trichotomy. Paul divides people into three categories, and he still would today. There are, of course, Jews and Gentiles. There's no surprise there. But there's a third category that Paul distinguishes from the other two, and that is the church. Jews, Gentiles, and the church. They are a distinct, separate group with benefits and privileges that are absolutely unique in the history of humanity. Now, something that you want to be conscious of is that a summary of Israel's past, present, and future is laid out for you in Paul's letter to the Romans. In Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul gives a profile of Israel's past, its present, and its future. And I recommend that you check that out if you haven't already. But when we look at Israel's history, there is a very convenient summary for us by a guy by the name of Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen goes through the history of Israel from a very interesting point of view. And what he summarizes is how throughout their history they have been unresponsive to God's requests, and yet in spite of that, he has a persistent purpose for their benefit. And if you look closely at the outline of Stephen's talk there, you will make a discovery that most people don't notice. And that is that whether he's talking about Abraham, uh, Moses, Joseph, whatever, his whole pattern is he talks about how they blow it the first time, but they get it right the second time. And he leads up to the fact that they blew it by not recognizing their Messiah, but they don't let him finish. They stone him. But if you understand his outline, you know what he's about to point out. They're going to get it the second time. And that's what he's really getting to there. They always reject whatever it is the first time, and they get it right on the second try. And what's also interesting as you go throughout Acts 7 is you'll discover details there that you won't notice on your own throughout the rest of the Bible. They're in the Bible, but you don't notice them until Stephen points them out. For instance, we always talk about Abraham and the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. But do you realize that he didn't obey? He waited 25 years before he followed the instructions of God? He was supposed to leave his family and go into the land. What he did is he went up to Haran. It's about seven miles upriver, and he stayed there until his dad died. And that took 25 years. Then he went into the land, and Stephen points that out. So Abraham's an example. Joseph, another example, he was hated by his brothers, and they don't recognize him until the second visit down to Egypt. Stephen is picking up that second time thing all the way through. And then, of course, Moses. He was rejected the first time, 
He spends 40 years in Midian, and they accept him the second time. So he continues this pattern, and then Stephen says this to the Sanhedrin in Acts 7, verse 52, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Notice the tact and caution that Stephen uses before this distinguished body of the Sanhedrin. He's my kind of guy. What he's doing is he's highlighting that their national trait has been deadly hostility to the messengers of God. But his presentation is interrupted by his martyrdom. If they had let him continue, well, I'll let you look it over and decide what you think he would have said next. So that's Stephen's summary. Now let's look at the summary given by the Lord Jesus. He gives it during what we call the triumphal entry. He's riding that donkey into Jerusalem, and it sounds so upbeat, right? And yet, what does Jesus do? He is weeping. He is riding that donkey into Jerusalem, and he's weeping. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Even in the translation, you can feel his grief and his anxiety and his concern. But the tragedy of all history is the next phrase. He says, and you were not willing. From the commitment of God to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 was the promise of a Messiah, amplified and illuminated for thousands of years. And they miss it. They don't understand it. Jesus says, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And the Luke 19 account says, now these things have been hidden from your sight. Hidden forever? No. Fortunately, Paul in Romans 11.25 says that the blindness is going to be lifted eventually. Israel is blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So that blindness is going to be lifted. And one of the most exciting things for you prophecy nerds isn't wars and rumors of wars, which are actually non-signs because they mean that the end is not yet. No, no. One of the most interesting signs is the number of Jews who are coming to faith in the Messiah, what we would call a Messianic Jew. Did you know that there are today over 350 Messianic fellowships in Israel? And that's the most exciting sign I know of Christ's return. Now, back in Matthew 23, Jesus says, For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I believe that's a reference to his second coming, that his return will be precipitated by the Jews petitioning him. Now, when we look at Israel's history after the Messiah, obviously some Jews did accept him, and the church was born at Pentecost. And for the first 10, 15 years or so, the church was almost 100% Jewish until Paul's ministry to the Gentiles exploded and Gentiles began pouring into the church. But what about those Jews who did not join the early church? Well, one of the biggest markers in Jewish history, of course, is the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, because that changed Judaism. Because, of course, the Torah says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Well, now they have no place to shed blood because the temple's gone. So they have a council of Yamnia in 90 AD, and they redefined Judaism to a works trip. 
You have to do certain works, prayers, fasting. You have to wear all black. You have to face Jerusalem when you pray, all, the, all these kind of things. They redefine Judaism. But the other thing that you have to understand is how anti-Semitic the church became in the centuries that followed. And it led to a heresy called replacement theology, which is the idea that the church has somehow replaced Israel in the plan and purposes of God. And the reason that that is such a serious subject is because I believe that by embracing that, you inadvertently call God a liar. Because there are almost 2,000 places in the Bible where God talks about Jesus ruling on the earth from David's throne. And you have to dismiss those or allegorize them or it presents real problems. Now, again, obviously, a big milestone in Jewish history is the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That is why they break glass at weddings. Did you know that? At a Jewish wedding, they take a glass and they wrap it in a napkin and they, psh, mazel tov, they break it. That is to commemorate the fall of Jerusalem. But why did Jerusalem fall in 70 AD? Well, there's lots of good answers. Jesus' answer in Luke 19.44, because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Now, regarding Israel's future, I just want to touch on one thing, and that is the Millennial Temple. Ezekiel records a detailed vision of it in Ezekiel 40-48, through 48, and one of the details that he records is found in Ezekiel 46.1. Did you realize that when the kingdom of God is reigning on the earth, and that temple, well, it's not going to be open on Sundays. You don't get to go there for Sunday morning service. Sorry. It's only open on Shabbat and on the new moon. And you say, well, gee, that's kind of a Jewish thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And did you know that the king that's going to be reigning is Jewish? We need to understand that. Now, I'm not saying you need to become Jewish, But I would like to see more Christians gain an understanding that the Jews are still God's people. His eternal promises to them were never invalidated. They were never shifted to the church. The church is never told that it's going to take Israel's place. But, of course, I'm going to deal more with that topic in our next episode. Okay, thanks for that, Colin. As I'm looking at and and listening, listening to you talk about the church and... Um, in Israel, and I know you're going to talk about the church next week more in depth, but something that comes to my mind whenever I'm, I'm thinking about the church is I'm thinking about the, it's, it's the, it's the bride of Christ. And so in my head, uh, in many people's heads, they are thinking about that and there can only be one bride, either it's the church, or it's Israel, and I think whenever you're talking about replacement theology, a lot of people would say, well, we're, the church isn't replacing Israel, it's just something that's different. Um, but this is the path that we go now. So how do, how do these two things coexist with one another? Uh, well, that's an excellent question, and that gets into a lot of the eschatology um, of what's going to happen in the end times. Uh, but you think about um, the bride of Christ, right? Um, well, 
if you look at the book of Revelation, so the, the book of Revelation actually is fairly orderly, right? And um, this idea of the church being the bride of Christ, that phrase, bride of Christ, doesn't actually occur in the Bible. And the, the imagery of the church being the bride is somewhat thin. So when, when you think about what the church is, right, the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles who are called out of the world to, to follow the Lord. Now, then you look at the construction of the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, the first three chapters deal with the church. The church is mentioned several times uh, in chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Revelation as, as Christ is writing these letters to the church. Then, in chapter 4, there is what some theologians uh, see as a distinction, because the chapter 4 begins with John hearing a call from heaven saying, come up here, right? And so they, they look at that as being uh, the dividing line of the rapture. And I think that there's good evidence for that, because chapters 1, 2, and 3 is all dealing with the church. But then after chapter 4, the church is not mentioned again. It's not mentioned one more time throughout the entire, uh, the entire book. And what you see is, as God is pouring out his wrath on the earth and, and uh, you know, bringing, bringing judgment to those who will not repent, he seals for protection 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. And he goes through a list, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And so, again, after the church is taken out of the world, God is dealing with Israel. Okay, and then when you get into Revelation 19, you see the marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, we find in Revelation 19, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. But it doesn't say that that's the church. It calls it the bride of the Lamb, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I think that this, this idea of the church being the bride of Christ, I don't think is necessarily something that is distinct to the church. I know that most, most Christendom, uh, most churches do teach that. But in the Old Testament, the idea of Israel as the wife of God is developed. It, different passages in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and Hosea, the prophets use this imagery of, of Israel being uh, the church. Well, to the discerning reader, most of the symbols regarding the bride of the, the wife of God or the bride of Christ, I think actually can be applied to the nation Israel. Because, you know, the, the church is mentioned in Revelation, and then it's not mentioned. Now, that's not to say that the church is not necessarily, is not a part of that, right? But mm-hmm. I, I think what we see in Revelation is, after the church is taken out of the world, God, again, is dealing with the world through the nation Israel. And when the marriage supper of the Lamb happens, that is... Uh, that is Israel and the church, and that's that's ultimately where they get commingled. Okay, so let me ask you this then. Let's come at it from a different angle, and 
I think that I would be able to point to a few Bible teachers that might support a position like this. I won't name names, but a position in which they would call the church now um, Israel itself because the the nation of Israel is, yes, a bloodline, but it's also a nation built off of a faith, the faith of Abraham. And so the church has now inherited a faith, and that is the distinguishing factor of the church. So what is your response to a Bible teacher who would teach that the church that we see it right now is actually the same thing as Israel, just a new iteration of it? Uh, I mean, I would ask him to show uh, the Bible passages where that's supported. There's certain covenants that are made with Israel in Jeremiah 31, Genesis 13, 2 Samuel 7, Jeremiah 33. God promises that Israel will have a nation, they will have a land, they will have a throne, they will have a king, and they will have a kingdom. And even when you get to the New Testament, uh, right, when, when the birth of Christ is announced to Mary, Gabriel says to her, your son is going to rule on the throne of David. Okay, well, when did that happen? It certainly didn't happen at his first coming because Rome was running the world in those days. And there was, there was no throne of David. So that is going to be something that happens at his second coming. And then if you look at Acts chapter 2, when Jesus is uh, getting ready to ascend to heaven, or no, excuse me, Acts, Acts chapter 1, when you see the ascension, they ask him in chapter 1, verse 6, uh, it says, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So still dealing with Israel as a nation, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And his answer to them is very telling. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then he tells them to go and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them and to be his witnesses uh, of what he's done. So in regards to their question of, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He says to them, none of your business as to the timing. But that answer implies that he will, that he is going to restore their land and their kingdom to them. And that has not happened. Yeah, and I think what you're what you're getting at, and it, just to try to put it in few or maybe fewer words, and perhaps over oversimplify it, is that whenever we're looking at the church and we're looking at at Israel, we are looking at not just an earthly kingdom, and not just a spiritual kingdom, not of this earth, but we're looking at Jesus is going to reign spiritually over the heavens and over over souls and eventually he will he will reign on this earth and the nation of Israel is is an integral part of that earthly reign whereas the church isn't necessarily I, I think that that's kind of where my head's going now and there's more to develop there uh, with me but that's just kind of as I'm hearing you speak that's how I would summarize a little bit from my head. Yeah, no, I think that that's I think that that's accurate. Like if you look at the promises God made to Israel, all of the all of the promises he made to them have to do with here on the earth. 
and all of the promises he makes to the church have to do with the spiritual reality, a heavenly reality. So both are true, but the one doesn't invalidate the other. Like there is still going to be, like when Jesus reigns, he is going to reign from the new Jerusalem. There is going to be a restoration of their land and of their nation, uh, and that, you know, the church doesn't invalidate that, and that doesn't invalidate the church. Both are still uh, still everlasting covenants that God made. Awesome. So you said you were going to talk about the church next week, a little preview. Do you have a preview for us for next week? Uh, well, just a little bit. Um, so y- we are moving forward into Hanukkah that starts next week. And uh, so I'm going to talk uh, specifically about the church, and we'll get into uh, what I considered uh, one of the myths regarding Israel, uh, one that we've already kind of touched on a little bit, uh, and it's replacement theology, which is that idea that the church has replaced Israel. Um, and really, I'll get into some of the history of it, but it's, it's nothing more than a non-biblical outgrowth of anti-Semitism in the early church. It denies Israel's place in God's redemptive program, which God himself specifies in both the Old and the New Testaments. And I'll begin to deal with that a little bit more next time. All right, so as we pivot uh, to what I have to say, uh, I was thinking about what to talk about this week, and with Hanukkah happening next week and, and lasting for a week or so, I asked myself, what's the number one thing that I don't understand about Jewish people? And we we just got done talking a little bit about it, but uh, I recall a lot of conversations that I've had, especially with my wife, and we would ask things about our Jewish friends like, well, how can they not believe in Jesus? See, it's apparent to me that the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus, and it makes much more sense with him. And from there, I started to think about all the people that aren't Jewish and don't believe in Jesus either. And how I get so caught up that I get frustrated with these people that don't believe whether they're Jewish or not. And what really gets me is whenever they just don't care to consider Jesus. How can they not see that Jesus is so much different than all of our man-made gods? How can they not see that if there is a God, that Jesus is part of the one true God? He is the one true God. So I started thinking and looking in the Bible, and I came across two things, one story and one verse that helped me put a little perspective into this frustration that I have. In the Gospel of Mark, in the sixth chapter, Jesus returns to Nazareth after choosing his disciples. He's healing people. He's teaching with authority. And as he does this, people are drawn to him. But they question whether he actually is who he says he is. You see... The people in Nazareth saw Jesus as a child, and it's difficult for them to believe that the same Jesus that they saw grow up could be the Son of God. So Jesus goes on to say that no prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. That's that's a quote. We would like to talk about how Jesus wasn't going to be recognized for who he was in his hometown as if that's just the way that it is. People just don't get recognition whenever they're in their, their hometown. But if we think about the Jewish mind a little further, I think that we should realize it's not just the hometown issue. To them, God was very much a mystery. He was bigger than anything they could imagine. He was that which had to be contained in the Holy Temple, the God that Moses 
had to hide in the cleft of the rock as he passed by because if he were to see him, he would die. So to see a man of flesh and blood in front of them speaking with authority and healing people, it didn't compute in their mind. And so it is with the people that are Jewish now and the people that aren't Jewish and don't believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. It is incomprehensible to the human mind that if there were to be a God that he, she, it would take a human form and all that goes with it and live among us. That comes about in Scripture in Ephesians 2.8. Here the Apostle Paul says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Paul says that faith in the gospel of Jesus is a gift. And the receiver of a gift, a true gift, doesn't do anything in order to get that gift other than accepting it. So if I really believe that faith in Jesus is but a gift from God, why do I get so upset with people that do not believe? So we as Christians shouldn't get as upset as we do whenever we are faced with the thoughts and actions of unbelievers. If anything, we should expect that they obstruct and push back against our claims and the way that we want to live our lives. We should expect that these things are going to happen. That doesn't mean that we completely give them over to their thoughts and desires, though. We are tasked with evangelizing the world so that the gift of faith can be given to more. But we should also not get caught up whenever it is apparent that the gift of faith will not be given to this person that we may be in conflict with. We can continue to pray for them that the gift may be given, but ultimately it's not up to us. It is always up to God, the gift giver. And before I leave this, there's one more thing I want to speak into, and that is to the person that grew up in the church but hasn't really received the gift of faith. See, to to that person, if that is you, your life is very much like the lives of the Jews in Nazareth. They have this conception, you have this conception that, you grew up with, and that's just the way it is. This doesn't work whenever it comes to having a saving faith in Jesus. So this idea of the gift of faith is not just for the unbeliever, but it's also for the quote-unquote believer that's grown up in church but only professes because that's just the way it is. We need to seriously examine ourselves and see if we've been given the gift of faith or not. Because if you've been given the gift of faith, it changes everything about who you are. It changes everything about the way you see the world. Your life will look and sound significantly different than the lives around you. And even if that may be you, and you realize that you may not really have a true saving faith in Jesus, know that you having your eyes open to this and you thinking about this is evidence of God working in your life. Continue to seek. And read Matthew 7, 7 through 12, to see what Jesus promises for your seeking. You talk a lot in there about not getting frustrated with the unbeliever, and you, you then sort of go into a, you know the person who was raised in the church but never really accepted the faith as their own. That's kind of where my line of questioning uh, wants to go in relation to because it started out with, you know, uh, we're talking about the Jews, and we, it's, it's hard to understand why the Jews don't believe. So being someone, as you were, uh, who was raised in the church, um, who was brought up in a family that believed in Christ, that went to church, parents who believed, 
did that give you uh, any type of advantage in accepting uh, Jesus as the Messiah and uh, making that faith your own? I want to say that it did, and I think in an earthly way it did, because I got to hear the gospel before a lot of the people uh, in I mean, even people that haven't still still haven't heard the gospel. I got to hear it from an early age from a variety of different people on a weekly basis, and so in an earthly sense, just that that immersion into into Christianity with other people that believed, or with people that believed. I didn't believe as a child, right? But with people that believed in an earthly way, yeah, of course, that's going to help. We want to raise our children in a way that we are pointing to Jesus all the time. And, uh, I mean, there's there's some crazy statistic, like if, if the father comes to faith in Jesus, in, in Jesus, then the rest of the family comes to faith in Jesus, like 85 or 90% of the time or something like that. Like, have, growing up in a household affects this. With that being said, I think that if you take Ephesians 2.8 and you see that faith is a gift from God, that it's we, we can't have faith in and of ourselves without a work of the Holy Spirit, without a work of God, then the answer to your question is no. Me growing up in church did not, uh, did not do anything on its own. It was God working through that circumstance that did something. So in an earthly way, I had an advantage. In a spiritual way, it was still God that had to give the gift, regardless of the circumstance that I was born into or the people that I was surrounded by. Okay, so that 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 makes sense. Do you think that, not taking away from the fact that it is a work of the Holy Spirit, but do you think the Holy Spirit's work was made... Uh, lighter or easier by the fact that you were exposed to it because you were hearing the word, you were hearing the gospel on a regular basis, and so the Holy Spirit had more opportunities to work in your life. Would you say that's true? Yeah. uh, I think the gospel has to be preached for faith to be given, right? Someone has to hear the gospel of Jesus for them to end up being given the, the given the gift of faith, so yeah, I would say that the there were more opportunities for the Holy Spirit to work through that. I mean, but the Holy Spirit can work in a multitude of different ways. But I guess that's where the high percentage of of children whose father is is a Bible a gospel believing Christian that that they end up following is that. As, as the leader in the household, he's given many opportunities to share that with his children. And so, yeah, I, I, the Holy Spirit has more opportunities to work and, and move through that. Okay, so bringing it full circle then, if you think about a Jewish person today who was raised in a Jewish household, and if you look back at history— and you see things like the Crusades and the Inquisition and the, just the horrible things that were done 
to the Jews as a people and done under the banner of Christ, do you see how that might give a disadvantage uh, to to that person believing and a di- uh, disadvantage to the Holy Spirit? Because, and I'll, I'll talk more about this in the next episode, I think, but, you know, a lot of them are raised believing that the New Testament is a book for Gentiles about how to persecute uh, about how to persecute Jews, and so they they don't want to go anywhere near the the New Testament. They don't want to hear about Jesus, and that's that's what they're raised uh, being taught. Do do you think that having an understanding of that gives uh, more uh, patience to the person who's trying to witness uh, to to the Jews or to the unsaved in general? Yeah, I, th- I think that's. I think that's just another way of making the argument that I'm making is that we shouldn't frustrate an unbelief. One, because it's a gift from God, and if it's not given, then it's not given. So that's that's just straight reducing it to the the simple part of it. But yes, all the things that you just said that there are circumstances that may gave me an advantage to hearing from the Holy Spirit, perhaps that that give other people a disadvantage and that's all the more reason why we should not get frustrated with people that don't believe it doesn't make their unbelief it doesn't justify their unbelief though i do want to i do want to say that if we really believe what we believe the the gospel of jesus christ then we can't let circumstances justify someone not believing and just give them a pass. That's that's that would be taking it too far. But to not get frustrated with that person would be okay and encouraged. I would say. Excellent points. Excellent thesis. Uh, where are you going to go next, Brett? Okay. So as I go into next week, I'm going to look at this Jewish. Christian background and this Gentile Christian background and kind of bring it a little bit into what the church is dealing with today. And and I'm going to look at Paul and I'm going to look at James. Paul being, you know, the theological juggernaut, this is what we believe in, and being very systematic. And then I'm going to look at James, who is all about doing good works, right? He's the, he's the Proverbs writer of the New Testament. And he has all these things that we should be doing, shouldn't be doing. And how do we reconcile the two of them? Are we in a faith-based religion? Are we in a works-based religion? And a lot of people have their favorites, James or Paul, and we're going to see how they actually are saying the same thing and fighting the same battle on two different fronts. So there's no hashtag Team James, hashtag Team Paul. Uh, there should not be. I'm sure <laughs> that someone has done that before, but there should not be hashtag Team James or hashtag Team Paul. All right. Well, uh, because you said hashtag Team Paul, uh, that means that we've come to the end of our time here today. Do you have any final thoughts as we wrap things up here, Brett? Uh, no. I just hope that everyone does a little bit of reading on Hanukkah, gets ready for Hanukkah. It starts, uh, what, next Monday? Uh, yeah, Sunday night. All right, Sunday night going into Monday. Enjoy Hanukkah. Don't uh, don't just uh, go across it. 
make sure you appreciate it for what it is as we gear up for this Christmas holiday season. All right, and we'll see you next time. See ya.